Well, good morning, Christ Church. It's great to be here and worship with you today. I'm, I don't know about you, I'm excited to uh, hear some of the stories that they have to tell us when they're back here officially. And, uh, you know, I, I just love everything that we're about with that school. The, the fact that, you know, we are breaking down the chains of poverty, that we are going in and that we are transforming the, the very landscape of their lives. And uh, it's something that I believe uh, is mutual. You know, I believe that there's something that that team took away from that experience, something that they learned from every single person there. And I'm excited to, to vicariously, if you will, uh, experience that too when they come home. So today, we are starting a brand new series called Dear Christ Church. Now, this is a study of the book of 1 Peter. Now, if you're a little confused, um, 1 Peter is one of those kind of short letters towards the end of your New Testament. It's not one we've really looked at before in a series or um, really, at least in all the time that I've been a part of Christ Church. So this might be brand new for quite a lot of us. And one of the reasons that we picked First Peter for this next series for the next three weeks is because it, it kind of fits with a lot of the things we're seeing in our world today. You know, First Peter is a letter that was written in a troubled time in the history of the church. And right now, you know, we are each facing challenges, not just in the life of our church, but also in the life of our greater society as well. Peter's communities were going through challenging times, and we believe that Peter's letter doesn't just speak to the first century church, but it also speaks to the 21st century church, specifically our church as well. And so what I want to offer this morning is some encouragement for each and every one of us, because all we have to do is look at a news app to see there's a lot of issues that are going on right now in our world, and it's easy to kind of fall into despair and kind of start losing our hope. And so we don't want to set aside the reality of the more difficult times and seasons in our life. So today is really about kind of examining how we can hold the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ together with this reality that we live in a suffering and broken world. And so to do that, I want to try something brand new this morning, or at least I think it's new. Before each of our uh, sections of scripture that we're going to read, we're going to, um, I'm going to say three words before the, the scripture. And those three words are, Dear Christ Church. Because again, I want us to remember that what we're about to read wasn't just written for people in the first century, it was written for us as well. And to, to begin, we actually have to start at the end of the letter, which actually tells what Peter's purpose for writing was in the first place. So let's begin together. Why don't we all say it together? One, two, three. Dear Christ Church. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. And I apologize. I meant just the three words, the dear Christ church. You don't have to, you don't have to read that all with me. Um, but, uh, but, before, but thank you for doing that. Um, before we can start unpacking Peter's message, I think it's important to understand the original context that he was writing in. Now, according to the beginning of the letter, we're dealing with the apostle Peter. This is the same Peter who was one of the 12 disciples, the, the leader, if you will, of the disciples. And he was the same Peter that denied 
denied Christ three times during Christ's trial. He was the one who was restored by Christ after Christ's resurrection. And he was the one that preached the first incredible message of grace during Pentecost. This is the Peter that we're dealing with today. But at the same time, it's kind of a different Peter. You know, of course, this is Peter with all of his victories, his defeats, all of his flaws. Very much a human being like the rest of us, but used powerfully by the Holy Spirit of God. But the letter that we're looking at today was likely written in A.D. 67. And so this was several decades distant from the Peter that we meet in the Gospels. This is a more mature Peter. This is a Peter that has more perspective, who's been in this world a little bit longer than he was before. And it's someone that I believe can teach us a thing or two. So one of the most interesting details is that Peter wrote this letter with the help of Silas. Now, how many of you remember Silas from our Also Starring series? Do you remember Silas? Yeah, he was the first one that we looked at, and he was kind of an interesting figure because Silas was uh, a, minor, uh, a minor actor, if you will, in this gospel story, but he rubbed shoulders with Jesus, or sorry, not with Jesus, he rubbed shoulders with Peter, with Paul, and with James of the Jerusalem church. So he rubbed shoulders with some of the big names of the faith, some of the major league players. And the fact that Silas helped Peter is actually pretty significant because many scholars look at the excellent Greek that the original first Peter letter was written in, and they say that a common fisherman could not possibly have written this letter. And so we have evidence within the letter itself that, well, a common fisherman didn't necessarily write the letter. He had the help of Silas. And what that might have looked like was Silas might have been a scribe where he was, uh, where Peter was uh, dictating word for word what Silas should write. Or Peter might have given Silas some of the main themes and ideas that he wanted in the letter and trusted Silas to compose the rest of it in his name. Those are the couple of ways that, that this letter comes to us in the form that we have it now. But whatever blends that we have it in, there's no doubt in my mind that Peter approved the result. And that is what we have in our Bibles today. Now, the people who originally received the letter of 1 Peter were living in some various Roman provinces in what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, you can see the map right up here. In, in order that the letter presents it, it, it went from Pontus, this is Pontus right here, or up in this area, then to Galatia, this big area in the middle, then to Cappadocia, and then all the way over here to Asia Minor and then to Bithynia. So all of these Roman provinces, this whole area of land is where the letter was distributed to all the churches that you see listed on here and to some that aren't listed on here. And I think that this is kind of um, significant for a few different reasons because it shows us that the early work of the Apostle Paul and the missionaries who worked in the early uh, or the mid to late 40s in the early 50s AD uh, were successful in establishing churches in that day. These churches, these congregations were still there. They were still active. But one of the things that this letter addresses is the fact that their faith was being tested by the problems and challenges of their day. And we can see hints of this because the introduction of the letter refers to Christians as exiles, and the end of the letter refers to the church as being in Babylon. Now, the language of exiles in Babylon uh, 
harkens back to the history and story of the Israelites who in 586 BC lost their kingdom, Israel, when the Babylonian armies came and destroyed the city, broke down the wall, burned down the temple, and took many of the people into captivity way off to the east. And those were times that were rather bleak, rather hopeless, that had little prospects for any change. And yet God never left his people. God was with them every step of the way. And in fact, in less than a century, God led his people out of exile back to the land of promise. So in Peter's time, it was customary for believers, for Christians to draw on that imagery, on that history, and to see themselves as being, as being exiles, as being separated from the people among whom they lived as having a different lifestyle than them, as always being in danger because their way of life was, threatened, was threatening the status quo of the people that they lived among. They saw the world as something that was passing away, not something that we ought to cling to for our own security. They saw themselves as being part of the world, but not of the world. They were in the world, but not of the world. They were citizens of a heavenly country, and their loyalty was beyond wherever they happened to be in any given moment. But there was also something else that informed this language of exiles in Babylon, and it was the fact that in just a few years earlier, a wave of persecution broke out uh, amongst the Christians. And it happened like this. In 64 AD, a great fire uh, took place in Rome, and it burned a good portion of the city. And the emperor of the time, Emperor Nero, this uh, handsome-looking man right here, uh, he, he, uh, he went and he, he said, the Christians in the city are responsible for this fire. And so what happened was a lot of people have speculated that Nero himself set this fire because he had these megalomaniacal sort of notions that uh, I want to build the city up in my own image, my own way. I want to leave a legacy that nobody can, nobody can tear down or touch. And so a lot of people believe this is what he did. We don't know that for certain. Some scholars don't think that's what happens. But regardless of what happened, the people of Nero's day, they, they thought that Nero was either behind it or that he was grossly negligent in allowing it to happen. And so Nero had to come up with a scapegoat. And the most convenient scapegoat of that time was this strange emerging sect called Christianity. And so a wave of persecution broke out just a few years before this letter was written. And in that time, many Christians were persecuted, they were tried, and they were burned. You know, many times they were burned alive or are nailed to a cross. And so this is all permeating kind of the background of what this letter is about. But one of the interesting things about persecution in those days is it wasn't constant, nor was it consistent. You know, this persecution about the fire of Rome only occurred for a few years, and then nothing happens. But all it took was one spark to set off an explosion before another wave of persecution rolled through. And every single Christian was liable to be executed for their faith for any number of reasons. It could be even something as simple as a petty disagreement between neighbors or a business associate falling out. And if an authority came to you and asked if you are a Christian disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus, you had the agonizing choice of 
choosing death on one hand and choosing to renounce Jesus as your savior on the other. There's also this language in the letter of being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. In the Old Testament, being sprinkled by blood signified three different things. It signified being cleansed from our sin, it signified being set apart in a special way, and it signified our pledge to walk in God's will for our lives. In the Christian tradition, we don't sprinkle blood, thankfully, but we do sprinkle something. How many of you know what it is? That's right. We sprinkle water. One of our modes of baptism is sprinkling. And like the sprinkling of the blood in the Old Testament, there's a lot that we have in common with baptism. In fact, by virtue of our baptism in Christ, we're cleansed from our sins, we're set apart to serve God in the world, and we pledge to walk every day in the will of God for our lives because baptism is a pledge of a clean conscience of walking with God through our lives. And now, I, I know that was a lot, a lot of background information for you, but this is just to set the stage and also for you to understand that this is all that's kind of running right along under the surface of this letter. This is what's going on in the day that it was written. Now, remember how Peter wanted to encourage us, not just the first century church, but us as well, wanted to encourage us that uh, experiencing what we're experiencing is part of God's grace for us. Well, one of Peter's main ideas is that suffering, conflict, and persecution is a natural part of living in this world. It's something that we're all going to experience at one time or another. And, you know, we can't get around it, at least not in a way that, that uh, honors the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter teaches that our living hope in Jesus produces joy in our suffering, delivers us from danger, and enables us to rely completely on God. And what happens then is we begin to rely more on God than on ourselves, and then we begin to rely less on the things of this world. And then what happens is we become witnesses, witnesses of God's grace by holy living and by submitting mutually to one another out of love for God and love for neighbor. And if you're following me so far, you might still be wondering, well, how... I, I see some parallels here, but how can an ancient letter like 1 Peter really speak to our situation today? And I think, here's the cool thing, I think the letter itself gives us the answer to that question. You can check it out in chapter 1, verse 12, which reads, the prophets were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You know, for Peter and his people, the scriptures were what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament in our Bibles were the scriptures for them. And Peter could see Jesus all over the books of the prophets. And what Peter couldn't have anticipated is that this letter that he wrote with the help of Silas and that was distributed to all these places in the first century would become inspired literature, scripture, for us as well, just as inspired as the prophetic books were for them. We can see Jesus written all over it. Because here's the reality, is that the inspiration of God always carries forward. The inspiration always carries forward to the generation of the living who are on this earth right now. It's not just meant for Peter and his generation, it's meant for each and every one of us, you and me. 
And as a generation of the living right now, we are called to pass on the gospel just as it was passed on to us. And that's why we refer to scripture as a living word relevant for us in this time and in this place. So with all of that out of the way, let's dig into the scripture. In fact, we're going to start with the first chapter, the first section of the scripture that talks about our living hope in Jesus. So let's say those three words together, Christ Church. Here we go. One, two, three. Dear Christ Church, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is God's word for us this morning. You know, there's a lot there that we can unpack, but we got to keep it manageable. And so we're going to boil it down to just four truths that we find in this particular passage about our living hope. You'll see a few blanks in your notes, um, on the second page of your notes. Here's the first truth. According to Peter, our living hope is rooted in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. It's rooted in Jesus' resurrection. You know, the passage says we have spiritual birth in the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's the new life that he comes to give us. And here's the really cool thing about it. Jesus' resurrection wasn't just an event sometime in the past 2,000 years ago. It was remarkable, of course, but it wasn't just confined to that time. And it's not a promise of the future for us, not just a promise of the future, it's something that takes an active part in our present, right this very minute. And so that leads to the second truth that we have this morning. According to Peter, our living hope is secure in the future and active in the present. Remember how we talked about the sprinkled water or the sprinkled blood before? Because of the power of Jesus' resurrection, we can be cleansed from our sin, we can do the very same things that Jesus did in the world, and we can walk with God with integrity in our lives because it's not us doing it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to make it possible for us to live in that way. And you see, when God's Spirit gets into us, we don't take pleasure, desire the same kind of things that we used to. You know, we, wanna, we want others to see what we've seen, to feel what we've felt, to change as we've changed. And so another thing, another truth that we can learn is that according to Peter, our living hope is solid ground in a shaky world. It's solid. You know, in the last month alone, there have been at least three mass shooting events that I can recall from the news. Three. And yet, despite that, and despite all the other bad news that we're exposed to on the media all the time, the divisive climate in our country, the divisions among countries around the world, you know, we are not a people without hope. 
And I think that it can be so easy when we look at this world without the perspective of Jesus, without the perspective of eternity and God's grace active in our world, that it's so easy to fall into despair. But here's the thing. We no longer stand on this world as our foundation. Instead, we stand on the one who is at work redeeming this world, the one who is transforming every single person's heart, one person at a time, redeeming us all. Peter also teaches us that according, uh, according to Peter, our living hope is based on our faith in an unseen God. It's based on our faith in an unseen God. You know, verses 1, 8 through 9 are some of my favorites in this letter because here's the thing. Even though I've never seen Jesus, I love him. And even though I've never seen Jesus, I believe that he has died for me and that he is my Lord and Savior. You know, I think he's, he's saved me from spiritual death. He's made it possible for me to embrace the purpose for which God created me. He's somebody that I want to follow. He's somebody that's worthy of being followed. Now, when the disciples met up after the resurrection, Thomas was the odd man out. He was the only one of the original 12 who had not seen the risen Christ, and he had some doubts. But when Thomas and Jesus got together, Thomas was able to touch Jesus' wounds and determine, yes, this is real. This is the same person who was crucified and died, and yet he lives. And after that happened, Jesus said this to his disciples. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Brothers and sisters, he's talking about us. You and me, all of us. We've never seen him, and yet we're here today for a reason. Hopefully because you love him, but at the very least because you're curious about this guy, Jesus, and how he can be an active part in your life today. You know, the only evidence we can show, I mean, we can't prove that Jesus is real from an empirical or outward sense. But the only evidence that we show this world that Jesus is real is through transformed hearts and changed lives. And at this point, it would be so easy to stop here with the good news. You know, this is what it's all about, right? Our living hope in Jesus Christ. But I think that we'd be selling ourselves short. Because here's the reality is that one of the things we need to remember is that there is no resurrection without the cross. And what I mean by that is this, that we can't be so wrapped up in looking at our living hope that we disconnect that living hope from the world around us because the reality is that we live in a broken and suffering world. And much of Peter's letter, in fact, has to do with persecution, with Christians dying for taking a stand on their faith. And it has to do with the trouble that puts the faith that we have in our living hope to the test. And so we have to keep a balanced perspective. And so what we need to do now is we need to move on to another part of Peter's letter in order to balance that perspective a little bit more. So let's do this together again. One, two, three. Dear Christ Church, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even as a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. Now, before we dig a little bit more into what we can learn from this passage about suffering and how we can balance that with our living hope, we should probably spend a few minutes breaking down the different ways that we suffer in this world. I think the most common way that we suffer is when we do the wrong thing. In fact, you've done it, you, you know what it's all about, and you probably had this kind of innocent look on your face after you did it, you know? And nobody was buying it, of course, but that's the look that you had on your face. But here's the thing, <laughs> we're all experts in doing the wrong thing. We have a PhD in doing the wrong thing, every single one of us. And those ill-placed desires that are in our heart, they cause us to take certain actions that then have consequences in our lives. Now, sometimes those consequences are relatively minor and may only produce some slight embarrassment in us. But sometimes, those consequences radically alter the course of our lives. In fact, it works both ways. It's not just when we do wrong that we suffer, it's when people around us do wrong. In fact, some of us have been hurt the most by the people that we love the most, the people that are closest to us in our lives. Because they've done the wrong thing, we are suffering, and they are suffering as well. Now, another way that we suffer in this world is, uh, is when we encounter suffering as being a part of a broken and fallen world. And so each and every one of us suffer for doing the wrong thing, but we also suffer when a storm beyond our control comes into our life. And now this storm can be a physical act of nature like this picture up here, but it can also be a metaphorical storm. You know, perhaps you hit a storm when you, when you tripped over the curb and broke your ankle. Maybe you hit a storm in your life when somebody very close to you got sick and suddenly passed away. You know, some attribute these kinds of things, these storms, these acts of nature, if you will, to God's action in our lives. In fact, that's what Job's friends were arguing, that Job wasn't suffering for being close to God. Job was suffering because he, he sinned in some way. They were saying, Job, you clearly had to have sinned, otherwise you wouldn't be suffering like this, and God is punishing you for your sin. But I don't think that's the case. I think, if anything, God is working to restore this broken world and the people in it, not putting storms in our path, but walking us through each and every storm that comes into our life so that we can become stronger, that we can trust God more to provide for us in all times and in all kinds of suffering. And the third and least common way we suffer is by following Jesus as Lord. Now, the reason why I say it's the least common way that we suffer is for two reasons. One, because less people in our context self-identify as Christian than they did even a few decades ago. And two, because those who do self-identify as Christian don't necessarily follow Jesus as Lord. Now, that's not a judgment statement. That's just a, a fact that many of us are on a different path in our faith, that some of us progress quickly in our faith, some of us a little bit more slowly, and some are stuck, either content to stay where they are, just not ready to move on to that next stage of faithfulness. Because it takes time and dedication, slowly over time, to give up control of our lives to God. 
Some, you know, like I said before, progress quickly, others slowly. And that's just the way of things. But for those who live for Jesus, there is a sacrifice involved in that because this world expects us to live a certain way. And when we buck the status quo, this world has something to say about that. And oftentimes, that response can issue in persecution. In fact, the early church, let's get up uh, the, the next image here. There it is. So if you were to stand firm in your faith in the days of the early church, you'd probably find yourself in the lion's pit, in the arena, facing the lions. Now, fortunately, we don't have to, we don't have to worry about facing lions and mobs for being a Christian where we happen to live here in the 21st century in the Western world. But there are still lions and mobs that are metaphorical in a sense that come into our lives that, that try to convince us that we maybe made a mistake when we stepped out in faith, that we made a mistake by trying to be different from the people around us, that we made a mistake to trust in an unseen God, that maybe it would be best if we had the show of religion, the empty shell, if you were, rather than the power and substance of religion. So those are the three ways we suffer, by doing wrong, by facing the storms in our life, and through following Jesus as Lord. And that leads us to four truths that we find in the passage we just read a few minutes ago um, on suffering. So according to Peter, suffering in Christ reduces the power of sin in our lives. Notice how I said reduces, not eliminates. I wish suffering in Christ would eliminate my sin in one fell swoop. That would be so wonderful not to have to worry about sinning ever again. And yet the reality is that in the world that we live in, be, uh, this reducing of the power of sin in our life takes time. It happens little by little as we yield our lives over to Jesus. And so one thing that I really want to make clear on this that's really important is that I'm not advocating that you go out and seek suffering in your life in order to reduce the sin in your life. That's not what I'm saying. There's something to be said for what God does in the midst of the suffering that we happen to experience in our life. It's one of the things that really drives us and really grows us in our faith. One of the things. But suffering in and of itself for its own sake, there's no glory in that. There's nothing that is biblical in that. In this life, we will have trouble. It doesn't say, in this life, go seek trouble. It'll come to us all on its own. Because here's the thing. When we're suffering for Christ, it reduces the power of sin because our desire for the things that once drove us begin to lessen. And our desire becomes to cling to Christ as the one who is seeing us through everything. Which leads us to the second truth today, that suffering in Christ purifies us to become like Jesus. Now, this and the last truth are very similar in some ways, but I think there's a little bit of a difference, because reducing the power of sin in our lives empties and opens us to be filled by something else. Now, to become like Jesus doesn't mean to imitate his behavior. It doesn't mean that if you try hard enough, if you say the right words, if you do the right things, you'll become like Jesus. It's not something that we can attain as human beings. What we're talking about 
is that when sin is reduced in our life, when we are purified to become like Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit that's getting into us, that's allowing us to, to live as Christ in this world. It means choosing to dwell where it's uncomfortable, where it may hurt, knowing full well that your living hope will see you through any storm. And another truth that we have from 1 Peter is that suffering in Christ, uh, it, it, it establishes, it brings about a witness that softens hearts and saves those who have never heard the gospel, who need to encounter Jesus Christ. I read somewhere that a saint is someone who makes it easier to believe in God. And one of my favorite verses from this letter is 315, where Peter encourages us to have an answer for anyone who asks about the hope that we have. So let me ask you a question. Are you ready to answer the question about the hope that you have if somebody were to ask you? Do you claim God's promises and hope to be found in Jesus for your life? And if so, can you share it with humility and with gentleness. Because here's the thing. I think too often in history, religion has been used as a cudgel rather than as a footstool for the weary child to climb up onto their father's lap. Our hearts must first be softened by the grace we've received in our suffering before we can soften the hearts of others through our witness. The bottom line is you need to know why you believe what you believe, and you need to own it and be willing to share it with others. And the fourth thing we learn from Peter is that suffering in Christ is inevitable. It's inevitable. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter your circumstances, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will suffer at some point for your faith. Here's what Jesus had to say about this in the Gospel of John. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Friends, family, don't allow yourself to be confused when you suffer. Jesus was beaten, nailed to a cross, and he died with the sin, our sin, the sin of the world on his shoulders. Suffering doesn't necessarily mean you're being punished. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've done the wrong thing. And it can be easy to look on our suffering and feel despair. But remember what we talked about before. We have to have a balanced perspective. Just as we need to remember that there is no resurrection without the cross, so we need to remember that the cross doesn't end with the grave. The cross doesn't end with the grave. There is suffering in this life, but there's hope. We need to recognize both of these realities, these truths, to live a balanced life in the faith. And nobody understood this better than Jesus. In fact, just a chapter after the last scripture we read, this is what Jesus had to say to his disciples. I have told you all this, meaning I have told you that you will suffer, so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have, what's that word? Overcome the world. I don't know about you, but I take a great deal of comfort in knowing that Jesus has overcome every single period of suffering, every trial, every problem in my life. The one who is dead and buried 
has overcome this world and offers us a living hope, we've got to keep a balanced perspective. We don't want to forget the reality that in this world is suffering, but we can't forget that our living hope in Jesus Christ overcomes it all. And so where does that leave us? It brings us, I think, to the most important question today. How can we, how can you, how can all of us embrace our living hope in the face of suffering? And I think that there's one passage in Peter, 1 Peter, that speaks to us directly on this. So on the count of three, one last time. One, two, three. Dear Christ Church, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, as we wrap up this morning, I want to share with you three ways we can embrace our living hope in the face of suffering. Here's the first. According to Peter, we need to keep praying. We need to keep praying. Now, what I've discovered over the years is that it's through prayer that we work through many of our fears of suffering. It's how we work through our suffering and become even stronger out the other side and move beyond it. You know, I've been reading some Adam Hamilton lately, and one of the books I'm reading right now is the book titled Unafraid. Um, very timely, of course, for this uh, sermon series. And one of the things that he does is define fear. And what he does is he takes the letters of each of the word, uh, of the word F-E-A-R, and he defines fear as false events appearing real. False events appearing real. Because what I've, I've noticed in my life is that what I'm most afraid of is that unknown, is that what if factor, right? What if I step out in faith and things blow up in front of me? You know, what happens then? But oftentimes when I face that fear with faith, when I've stepped out boldly and trusted God, I found that my fear had little grounding in reality. That if there was any suffering at all, it was suffering that I could bear up with for the, the privilege and the blessing of being with Christ and in Christ in that moment. And so I learned to keep praying. As we confront our fear of suffering through prayer, you see, we begin to realize that God's faithfulness is more potent, more real than any fear and any suffering that we can face. And it makes us stronger spiritually when we pray. Here's the second way that we can embrace our living hope in the face of suffering. We need to use our gifts to serve. We use our gifts to serve. Jesus didn't serve others to take his mind off the suffering that he was about to experience on the cross. Jesus served others because it elevated his purpose for being above his suffering. You know, he was free to be who he really is and was. And that's what we're called to do as well. As we engage our gifts, as we serve those around us, we're free to be who we really are because each of us has a gift and each of us has the blessing to exercise those gifts, to glorify this God who faithfully equips us to live beyond ourselves and the things that this world says should be important to us. When we serve others with our gifts, we're no longer obsessed with the things that this world says we should be obsessed with. 
Instead, we're interested in the well-being of those for whom Christ died and rose again to save. The third thing we can do to embrace our living hope in the face of suffering, we need to intentionally represent Christ in this world. You know, the early church, as you all know, was uh, under pressure to be conformed to the world around it, that the early church was pressured to be conformed, and yet the church held out the hope of salvation to those who are left bankrupt by that same culture. We've all chased after things in this life that we believe would fulfill us. Each and every one of us has done that, and we've been left disappointed. But it isn't until we begin to approach this life asking the question, how can I be Jesus in somebody's life today, that we begin to understand that life isn't about us after all. We begin to understand that any security that we happen to be chasing after is at best an illusion. And any comfort that we have without fulfillment, without purpose, is merely empty comfort. It's something that when we choose to conform to Christ, we discover that we're freed from the fear of suffering and begin to see every day as an opportunity to make Christ known to the world around us. And that becomes our new desire. Now, I'd be missing something critical if I didn't close out by mentioning this. The same trials that strengthen some believers can destroy others. Suffering can either destroy faith or establish faith. The difference between those two outcomes is one thing, your perspective. Earlier, remember we talked about how important it is to remember that there would be no resurrection without the cross and how the cross didn't end with the grave. We also need to remember one more thing, that we are not alone. As we step out in faith, as we keep praying, as we serve others with our gifts, as we intentionally represent Christ in the world, we'll discover that the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling within us, is directing us, is comforting us and moving us forward. We'll discover that the community of faith is rallied around us and is supporting us, is making it possible for us to live out our faith in that kind of way. And if that's not a message of hope in a time of great need, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know what is. And so, friends, family, Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your love and grace in Jesus Christ, which never fails and never ends. It never fails because the grave couldn't keep him. It never ends because Jesus is active right now in this place. Right now, there is the shadow of the cross and of eternity in this place, and we say, thank you, Lord. Fill us with your spirit Guide us anew because we are your children. We are the ones for whom you died. And we thank you so much, Lord. So empower us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit to do the things that please you, to keep praying, to serve others with our gifts, and to intentionally represent Christ out in the world, both as a church and as individuals. For it is worth every moment of our being to draw closer to you. And in this troubled world of suffering, Lord, knowing that the problems are coming, I pray, Lord, that we would stand firm in our faith like the early church, that we would stand firm on Jesus as the foundation and not on this shifting, shaky world that we live on. So, Lord, let us be part of your great movement here. Fill us with your grace so that we may go out into the world 
and demonstrate the love of Christ through transformed hearts and changed lives. We thank you and we pray all of these things with gratitude and great expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In just a moment, church family, we're going to invite our ushers forward for our time of offering. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I just always like to remind you is that during this time, it's just one of the ways that we give back. Because earlier today, uh, when we were singing together, we were tithing, in a sense, our breath, our praise back to God. And so all things come from God, and we return some of those things to God in gratitude. And so as always, I just want to encourage you to give with glad and generous hearts. And I want to thank you for being partners in life transformation.